The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish, which is brought to you by BetterHelp and FabFitFun. Before I go any further, I want to thank Susanna Yu for supporting the show through Patreon. If you want to be like Susanna, head over to patreon.com slash murderish to get access to bonus content, merch packages, and have some of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. That's patreon.com slash murderish. Sources for this episode include the Associated Press for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Oprah.com, Justia.com, and Once Upon a Crime, a True Crime Podcast. If you haven't had a chance to listen to Once Upon a Crime, I suggest you check it out and hit subscribe while you're there. The case I'm covering in this episode was suggested by my mom, Terry. A quick warning before we get started. This case involves the abuse of a young child. While not graphic, I do advise using discretion before listening if this is a particularly sensitive topic for you. Without further delay, let's get into the case. This case takes us to the historic town of Jamestown, California, located in Tuolumne County, about 120 miles east of San Francisco. Well known for being a gold rush town, Jamestown boasts a low crime rate and supposedly haunted hotels. The town has quite a bit of history, as it's home to the Sierra Railway, which was founded in 1897. The small town has been the chosen location for the filming of popular TV shows like Little House on the Prairie and Green Anchors. Driving through the town, you'll see dry-laid stone buildings and Queen Anne-style structures from the 19th century. In the 1960s, a fire destroyed many of Jamestown's historical buildings, including hotels, which many believe are still haunted by ghosts. In 1993, the small historic town would be rocked by a widely publicized murder. Many people would praise the murderer, even calling the killer a hero. A family would be torn apart as a result of a series of tragic events. At the end of it all, two people would be dead, and another would be torn away from family for a very long time. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Ellie Nestler. Nestler was born on August 2nd of 1952 in San Andreas, California. Her mother, Marie Starr, married Ellie's father at a very young age. The marriage didn't last, however, as Marie claimed her husband was an abusive alcoholic. Ellie, the oldest sibling of two sisters, was known to be a very helpful child with a solid work ethic, and she wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty. According to an LA Times article, Ellie's mother, Marie, said her daughter drove a tractor for local cattle ranchers, dug ditches, installed irrigation pipes, and worked on cars when she was a teenager. Ellie did what she could to help provide for her family, who often struggled financially. Ellie had a small frame and short brownish-colored hair with red tones and green eyes. 
Although she was small and described as good-natured, Ellie was tough. According to an LA Times article, her mother once told her, trust in the Lord, but pack a pistol just in case, and do not seek trouble, but if trouble finds you, strike first. Growing up near Jamestown, Ellie's childhood was not easy. She suffered through trauma that stemmed from her being molested at the age of seven by a family friend. She got into some trouble during her teenage years and served time in a California Youth Authority facility for stealing a car when she was just 18 years old. Just like her mom, Ellie got married at a very young age. In her teenage years, she became a divorcee. After her first marriage ended, Ellie married a man named Bill Nessler. In 1982, Bill and Ellie became parents to a baby boy who they named William, often referred to as Willie. Eventually, Ellie and Bill, along with their baby boy Willie, moved to Liberia on the coast of West Africa. The Nestler family moved there in search of gold. The couple went on to have another child, a baby girl named Rebecca, who was often referred to as Becky. After a civil war erupted in Liberia, Ellie packed her children up and moved back home to California. Bill did not return with them, choosing instead to stay behind to continue searching for gold and to coal mine. The trauma Ellie suffered as a child likely affected the manner in which she parented her own children. She was fiercely protective over them, never allowing a babysitter to watch them or even letting them out of her sight. Ellie trusted no one, especially not with her children. Ellie was a deeply religious woman. She'd been raised that way. Ellie decorated her trailer home in Sonora with crucifixes and religious expressions. Ellie was a single mom, and times were tough. She struggled financially and raised her two children on welfare. She was fortunate, however, that her sister Jeanette and her mother Marie lived nearby and provided a solid support system for her. Ellie also had her church family who were all very close. Often shadowed by his mother's watchful eye, young Willie yearned to do things on his own and be free to participate in activities like church camp. In 1988, when Willie was six years old, he begged his mother to let him attend summer Christian camp, which was being facilitated by their church. Ellie told her son no repeatedly, allowing her son to be away from her for so long was an absolute non-starter for the overprotective mother. Ellie's sister, Jeanette, told Ellie that she should allow Willie to attend. After all, he'd be surrounded by their close friends and members of their church, people they trusted. Although it took quite a bit of convincing, Ellie hesitantly agreed to let her son attend the three-week-long Christian camp away from home. Ellie's overprotective nature was well known amongst her family, but her sister was able to convince Ellie that this would be a positive experience for young Willie. After returning from camp, however, young Willie was not himself. Things were different, and Ellie, being the attentive mother that she was, knew it. Ellie noticed that after Willie returned from camp, he seemed depressed, angry, and completely different than he had been prior to leaving for camp. Ellie confided in her friend, Daniel Driver, about her son's sudden change in behavior. Daniel Driver, in his early 30s at the time, was a dishwasher at the Christian camp Willie attended. He also attended the same church as Ellie in Jamestown. Driver was very active in the church, regularly attending Bible studies and often seen carrying a Bible around with him. 
Driver, a single man with no children of his own, threw himself into helping children at their church. Being that Ellie was a single mother, Driver became a father figure to Willie, whose own father only visited on occasion. Ellie, who typically kept people at a distance, developed a friendship with Driver over time. Driver would do handyman work at Ellie's home, which was helpful, given that she didn't have a man in the house to fix things. When she'd confide in him about Willie's sudden change in behavior, Driver would temporarily alleviate some of Ellie's anxiety by preaching from the Bible. After returning from camp, Willie began acting out, and his behavior had a negative impact on him in school. Things got so bad that Willie had to change schools three times in a one-year time period. Ellie was at a loss as to what could be wrong with her son. Perhaps he missed his dad. Perhaps this was a phase that he would eventually grow out of. Whatever it was, Ellie mostly blamed herself for her son's behavior. She believed that she might be raising him in a way that perpetuated his bad behavior. She was so concerned about it that at one point, she considered putting her son in foster care, believing that he'd be better off. Meanwhile, Willie went for an overnight trip to his Aunt Jeanette's house. Going away to stay with his aunt was really the only opportunity that Willie had to get a break from his mother's tight grasp. While staying with his Aunt Jeanette, Willie told her a secret that he'd been keeping for almost a year. A secret that would turn his world upside down and have deadly consequences. If you're like me, you probably don't spend enough time treating yourself. I recently discovered FabFitFun and I am so glad that I did. FabFitFun curates must-have luxury beauty, fitness, and lifestyle items and ships them right to your door every season. For just $49.99 every three months, you'll receive a box full of goodies like skincare products, makeup, home goods, jewelry, and more. All of the products are full size, no sample sizes. Although you pay under $50, every FabFitFun box is guaranteed to have a value of at least $200. I recently did a photo shoot and the night before, I treated myself to an antioxidant face mask and a soothing hand treatment that I received in my FabFitFun box. Both were amazing and had my skin glowing for the photos. In addition to the awesome box full of luxury products, you'll get access to FabFitFun TV, where you can watch fitness videos, tutorials for some of the products that FabFitFun offers, recipes, and more. Seeing a FabFitFun box on your doorstep is just as exciting as getting a Netflix notification for a new crime documentary that just came out. If you're ready to treat yourself or someone you love each season, go to fabfitfun.com and use code MURDERISH for $10 off your first box. That's fabfitfun.com and use code MURDERISH for $10 off your first box. Willie told his aunt that he had been sexually abused during his stay at the Christian camp. As it turned out, his abuser was someone who was very close to him and his mother. He was a close family friend. Willie told his aunt that Daniel Driver had been the person who abused him. At this point, the clock was ticking. Someone had less than five years to live.
Willie kept his secret for almost a year because he said Driver threatened to kill his sister, his mother, and him if he said anything. Willie's Aunt Jeanette comforted her nephew and assured him that everything would be okay. She told Willie that this was not a secret that she could keep. And with that, Jeanette contacted Ellie right away and told her the crushing news. Ellie was beside herself. A mix of emotions flooded through her upon hearing that her son had been abused. Ellie was furious at the thought of anyone hurting her precious child, who by this time was just seven years old. As she'd done after Willie's behavior changed, Ellie turned inward and blamed herself for trusting Daniel Driver in the first place. She had gone against her instincts and allowed Willie to attend camp, and the result of that decision, unbeknownst to Ellie, would prove to be catastrophic to her family. Daniel Mark Driver was born on August 27th of 1957 in Virginia, California. Driver lived in Palo Alto, California for a time, but moved to Tuolumne County to be near his mother. Driver, being a deeply religious man, memorized scripture which he'd recite word for word. Driver was a dishwasher at a Christian camp and also earned money doing handyman work. Ellie Nessler had allowed him to work inside of her home on several occasions, and during that time, Driver was able to continue abusing Willie, unbeknownst to Ellie. The overprotective mother had no idea that Driver had been abusing her son. Once the secret was revealed, a series of events would unfold, forever changing the lives of all involved. Ellie immediately went to law enforcement to inform them of the abuse her son had suffered at the hands of Daniel Driver. At this time, a search of Driver's previous record was run, and it was discovered that in 1984, he had been brought up on sexual charges involving five young boys in San Jose, California. Before Driver answered for the 1984 charges in court, the judge read letters which were submitted by members of Driver's church. In a show of support, the letters claimed that Driver was a good person and an avid churchgoer. By the time he appeared in court, the judge decided not to give Driver any jail time. Seemingly influenced by the letters he'd received in support of Driver, the judge opted only to give him probation after he'd been convicted of lewd acts on five boys. After his conviction for lewd acts on minors, Driver moved to Tuolumne County and entered into a relationship with a woman who had a five-year-old son. In what would later be discovered as a regular pattern for Driver, he became very close with his girlfriend's son paying him more attention than would be considered normal. After a while, the boy's mother grew concerned with the relationship between Driver and her son. At one point, she asked her son if Driver had done anything inappropriate with him. Her son answered no, but her suspicions were confirmed not long after she confronted her son. In what could be described as a parent's worst nightmare, the young boy's mother caught Driver in the act of touching her son inappropriately. After kicking Driver out of the house, the woman was able to have her friend run a background check on him. Her friend, who worked in the DA's office, was able to find out that Driver had served jail time in 1983 for a child molestation conviction. In May of 1989, the year after Willie attended camp and said that he was abused by Driver, 
a complaint was filed against the repeated sex offender. In the complaint against Driver, police alleged five counts of child molestation involving five boys, including Willie Nessler. As it turned out, several other boys had made similar claims about Driver, corroborating Willie's claim. After the complaint was filed, police were not able to locate Driver. He had left town, likely because he knew people were starting to talk. Police wouldn't catch up to Driver for almost four years. During the time that Driver was on the run, Willie was petrified that his abuser would harm him. He worried that Driver might kidnap or kill him, as he had made these threats in the past. During this time, young Willie became paranoid and suicidal. Ellie once found her son with a gun in his possession. The worried mother enlisted the help of a counselor, desperate to help her son get better. During this time, Ellie confided in her sister, Jeanette, that she had been assaulted in the same manner as her son when she was a child and that she also became suicidal as a result of the trauma. Finally, in 1993, law enforcement caught up with Daniel Driver. He'd been hiding in Palo Alto, California, where he had previously lived. While in hiding, Driver was caught shoplifting, which is how law enforcement in Tuolumne County were able to find him. Sheriffs escorted Driver back to Tuolumne County to face charges on five counts of child molestation. Unfortunately, during this time in the early 1990s, Ellie Nessler seemed to lose her way. She became addicted to methamphetamine, a fact that would be used against her a few years later in a very public way. During the investigation into molestation claims against Driver, it was learned that he had singled Willie out at Christian camp and paid him a lot of attention. Willie loved animals, and Driver used this to lure the young boy into the woods in order to get him alone. This is where many of the sexual assaults took place and where Driver sodomized Willie. The abuse continued even after Willie returned home from camp. Driver stalked Willie during this time and used his friendship with Willie's mother to manipulate the young boy, who kept everything a secret, fearing that Driver would follow through on the threats he'd made against Willie and his family. On April 2, 1993, Driver was finally forced to answer for his charges in court. A preliminary hearing in the child molestation case against Daniel Driver was scheduled that day. Prior to the hearing, Ellie met with the district attorney and requested that her son's testimony be videotaped and played in court during the hearing. She didn't want Willie to be subjected to testifying in the same courtroom where his abuser would be. Unfortunately, her request was denied as apparently it wasn't possible at the time to videotape testimony due to the lack of funding. The DA also pointed out that Daniel Driver had a constitutional right to face his accuser in court. Ellie also requested that the court hearing not be open to the public, but again, her request was denied. Willie was going to have to sit face-to-face -face with his abuser. The young boy, age 11 by this time, became severely ill at the thought of being near Driver. He threw up outside of the courtroom and told his mother he just couldn't face him. Ellie empowered her son to be brave, and she told him she believed in him. She told Willie that his testimony could help put Driver in prison, where he could never hurt anyone again. Willie was able to gather the courage to walk inside of the community building, where there was a room that served as a courtroom. 
Tuolumne County didn't have a courthouse due to budget constraints. Ellie's sister and her cousin had joined them that day for moral support, as this was not going to be easy for Ellie and her son. While Willie and his mother waited for the hearing to start, Daniel Driver, escorted by sheriffs, walked past Willie and Ellie, half-smiling as he walked by the boy he had abused. Ellie became so enraged at the sight of Driver with a smirk on his face, she jumped in his direction. Ellie's sister, Jeanette, immediately grabbed her sister and held her back from assaulting Driver. Also while waiting for the hearing to begin, Ellie was able to speak with one of the mothers of the other victims who was also scheduled to testify against Driver that day. According to the Associated Press, that mother said of her conversation with Ellie, she was convinced that Driver was going to walk. Ellie was well aware of Driver's history of abusing young boys and that he had virtually gotten off scot-free after those incidents. She couldn't stand the thought of him walking free after what he had done to her little boy and others. In addition, one of the other victims' mothers told Ellie that the other boys were all very nervous on the witness stand and that the trial didn't seem to be going well. This likely fueled the fire that was already inside of Ellie, who was a ball of nerves waiting for her son's turn to testify. Ellie paced back and forth anxiously as they waited. During this time, Ellie allegedly asked the district attorney a question. She wanted to know if she would get into trouble if something happened to Driver. The DA responded and said no, although it's possible the DA thought Ellie was referring to a previous incident where Driver was attacked in prison. Finally, Ellie, her sister, her cousin, and Willie entered the makeshift courtroom. The judge had not entered the courtroom just yet. Across the packed courtroom was Daniel Driver, shackled and seated next to his defense attorney. Ellie was enraged at the sight of Driver. He had stolen her son's innocence and caused him such pain. Willie had gone to camp a happy young boy and returned angry, depressed, and suicidal. And there he was, vomiting outside of the courtroom, absolutely sick at the thought of being in the same room as the man who'd abused and terrorized him. Driver had finally been asked to answer for what he'd done in a court of law, but Ellie was not confident that justice would be served. She feared he would walk away from these charges, just like he had in the past. It was at this time that Ellie made a decision. There is so much pressure and stress that comes along with everyday life, and that stress can interfere with our happiness. It can be very helpful to seek counseling when these issues arise, but meeting with someone on their schedule and at their location isn't always convenient. That's where BetterHelp Online Counseling comes in. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, relationships, trauma, LGBTQ matters, and more. And of course, anything you share is completely confidential. BetterHelp is unique in that they make counseling services convenient by offering counseling online through video chat, and you can chat with your counselor via text message too. If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, simply request a new one at any time at no charge. Not only can you receive counseling from the convenience of your own home, BetterHelp services will not break the bank. 
Murderish listeners can get an extra discount by going to betterhelp.com slash murderish and entering promo code murderish. That's betterhelp.com slash murderish and use promo code murderish for 10% off your first month. Without warning, in a courtroom filled with over 100 people, Ellie stood up. Ellie was standing right behind driver's defense attorney, just a few feet away from the man who'd raped her son and changed him forever. Right then, six gunshots rang out. The courtroom roared with panicked people who began taking cover. Ellie had drawn a pistol from the pocket of her skirt. She pointed the gun directly at the back of driver's head and emptied all six rounds. Driver hit the floor and lay in a pool of his own blood, never having suspected what was to come. With five bullet wounds in his head and neck, Daniel Driver was rushed to a hospital, where he died not long after arriving. Ellie, frustrated, angry, and worried that Driver was going to walk, had taken matters into her own hands, ensuring that Driver would never have the opportunity to hurt another child again and that he would not escape justice this time around. Sheriffs in the courtroom immediately ordered Ellie to drop the gun and hit the floor with her face down. Ellie was compliant, throwing her hands into the air and surrendering. She was arrested and taken in for questioning by Tuolumne County Sheriffs. According to the Associated Press, Ellie was calm as she was escorted out of the courtroom. It was quickly discovered that Ellie had taken the small pistol out of her sister's purse while they were waiting outside of the courtroom. In Tuolumne County, it wasn't abnormal for people to carry guns, and security at the makeshift courthouse was virtually non-existent. The protective mother told sheriffs that she wasn't sorry for what she had done. She told them that driver deserved to die. According to Justia.com, while in custody, Ellie told deputies, You don't understand. He has raped hundreds of boys. In a recorded statement, Ellie went on to say she had not intended to kill Driver at the hearing and did not know whether she had done the right thing, but was tired of all the pain Driver had caused and that he deserved to die. Ellie expressed that her son's pain had destroyed her sense of right and wrong and she believed that when Driver smirked at Willie outside of the courtroom, she would have killed him right then as she already had possession of the gun. The subject of drugs came up during the deputy's questioning of Ellie. She made inconsistent statements regarding her drug use before she shot and killed Driver. While being recorded, Ellie said she hadn't used any drugs or consumed alcohol the day she shot him. After the recording ended, Ellie told deputies that she had done crank that morning. When deputies transported her to a facility to take a blood sample from her, according to the LA Times, she again admitted that she had taken meth the morning of the day she shot Driver. The blood sample results would later confirm this. According to the blood sample results, Ellie had done a significant amount of meth approximately one to three days before she shot Driver. Beyond the fact that Ellie believed that Driver might not be convicted of his crimes, Ellie may have had other motives for killing him. 
She came from a dysfunctional home with an alcoholic father who reportedly abused her mother. Ellie was molested at the age of seven, just a year older than her son was when he was abused. Ellie struggled with suicidal thoughts as a child due to the sexual abuse she suffered at the hands of a man who was never charged for the crime. By killing Daniel Driver, Ellie may have felt that she was also killing her own abuser. Ellie was charged with first-degree murder and placed behind bars on $500,000 bail. The community rallied in support of Ellie, even calling her a hero. People took up collections to help with her defense. A bail bondsman out of Sacramento would eventually post the half-million-dollar bail, and Ellie was released from jail. Ellie's supporters saw her as a mother who couldn't bear to let her son's abuser walk free, and many of them could picture themselves doing the same thing if it had been their own child who was abused. The Associated Press reported that a local waitress named Denise Wested commented about what her customers were saying about Ellie Nestler. Wested said about her customers, they were saying Nestler deserves a medal and they want to be on the jury so they can let her go. While many people supported Ellie, others condemned her actions, calling it vigilante justice. After being released on bail, Ellie made several statements to the press, which didn't always paint her in the best light. According to the Associated Press, prior to her trial, Ellie made this public statement about killing Driver. Maybe I'm not God, but I'm the closest thing to it. As these situations usually go, several facts about Ellie's past were dug up and widely reported by the press. Ellie's previous criminal record for car theft as a teenager was brought to light, as well as the positive test result for meth the day she shot Driver. In July of 1993, Ellie Nessler went on trial in Sonora County for the murder of Daniel Driver. A jury made up of five men and seven women would decide her fate. Superior Court Judge William Polly presided. Ellie entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Prosecutor Mary Jo Graves told the jury that Ellie was a methamphetamine user who was high on meth the day she shot and killed Driver. Graves also claimed that Ellie had been planning Driver's murder for two years based on a statement that she had made to sheriffs during her interrogation. Shortly after shooting Driver, Ellie told sheriffs that she had considered killing him about two years prior. According to the Desert News, Ellie's defense team, led by Tony Sarah and Don Seckerstorm, tried to show the jury that their client suffered a temporary moral blindness. They told the jury that Ellie was temporarily insane at the time she shot and killed Driver. In his closing statement, Tony Sarah told the jury that they could consider convicting Ellie of second-degree murder, manslaughter, or find her innocent. According to the UPI archives, Sarah further said, I would have liked to argue for innocence by insanity. Tony Sarah described Daniel Driver as a rotten man, a sea snake with no goodness in him. In August of 1993, the jury convicted Ellie Nessler of voluntary manslaughter. She faced a maximum of 16 years in prison. Some speculate that the jury's verdict was a compromise that indicated the jury was sympathetic toward Ellie, who, above all, just wanted to protect her son. The jury rejected her insanity plea and found that Ellie was sane when she killed Driver. Five months later, 
Ellie would be sentenced for her crime. On January 7th of 1994, Ellie's defense attorney, Tony Sarah, asked for leniency in her sentencing. Two months after she was convicted, Ellie discovered that she had advanced-staged breast cancer. Her prognosis was terminal, and she was told she only had about five years to live. Sarah used this in his plea for leniency. He also told the judge that Ellie deserved leniency for the welfare of her two children, who were 12 and 8 years old at the time. According to the LA Times, Sarah asked the judge to allow Ellie to be free on probation, saying, If she dies in prison, I think the legend of Ellie Nessler will be greater. Ellie also wrote a long and heartfelt letter to the judge prior to her sentencing. In her letter, she requested to be placed on probation instead of serving time in prison, as she believed she didn't have long to live. The judge, however, was not swayed. In fact, he thought the defense's request for probation for Ellie was very inappropriate. According to the LA Times, the judge said, The defendant knew full well the penalty when she shot Daniel Driver, and she intended to pay that penalty. The judge referred to Driver's killing as an execution showing a high degree of viciousness. With that, Ellie Nessler was sentenced to serve 10 years in prison, six years for voluntary manslaughter, and four additional years for using a gun during the crime. She would be eligible for parole in five years. As Ellie was escorted out of the courtroom in shackles, reporters asked her if she believed her sentence was fair. According to the LA Times, Ellie responded saying, yeah, it was fair. Ellie began serving her sentence at a prison in Stockton, California. Her son, Willie, was sent to live with his aunt while her daughter, Becky, was sent to live with her grandmother. From prison, Ellie was interviewed by Oprah Winfrey via satellite while her two young children, Willie and Becky, were on set with Oprah. When asked whether she had any regrets over killing Driver, Ellie explained that she regretted that her actions led her to be away from her children and that she wished the legal system would have taken care of Daniel Driver so she wouldn't have to. Ellie also told Oprah that Driver's young victims were being asked on the witness stand whether they enjoyed being sodomized by Driver and that her son became violently ill at the thought of testifying in front of his abuser. She said she encouraged her son to testify, but he was extremely afraid. During the heartbreaking interview, a tearful Becky told Oprah that her mother shouldn't be in jail. After Ellie was sentenced, her defense team filed an appeal based on juror misconduct. They claimed that a juror on her trial shared information with other jurors based on information she had received from someone outside of court proceedings. The appeal further alleged that the juror in question shared with the other jurors rumors she had heard about the case. In August of 1997, almost four years after Ellie was sentenced to 10 years in prison, the state Supreme Court ruled in Ellie's favor. The court ruled that Ellie was entitled to a new hearing to decide whether Ellie was in fact sane when she killed Daniel Driver. The court's decision was based on what it stated were prejudicial statements made by a juror during deliberations. While the court granted Ellie a new hearing on the sanity issue, they upheld her voluntary manslaughter conviction. The court's ruling came just two years before Ellie would come up for parole. After Ellie won her appeal, 
she negotiated a deal with the state to change her plea to guilty in exchange for her freedom. And with that, Ellie was released from prison at the age of 45 after serving about three and a half years of her 10-year sentence. While Ellie was serving time for killing Driver, a production team approached her regarding a deal to make a movie based on her life. In exchange for allowing them to make a made-for-TV movie about her, Ellie would be paid $110,000. In 1999, two years after she was released from prison, the movie based on her life was released. Ellie used the money she received to buy a new home and move herself and her now teenage children to Galt, California. It was an exciting time for Ellie and a fresh start for her and her family. Their happiness, however, was short-lived. The six-figure payment Ellie received was completely gone within a few months. After she spent all the money, Ellie was forced to move in with a family friend, and the family would continue to run into trouble with the law. Although Ellie had surpassed the amount of time doctors said she would live, her quality of life was not great. In October of 2001, Ellie was arrested for intent to sell drugs after she was caught purchasing 10,000 tabs of meth. The following year, she pleaded guilty to the drug charges and received a sentence of six years to be served in a California women's facility in Chowchilla, California. Due to her dire medical condition, Ellie was granted early release from prison in 2006 after serving four years of her six-year sentence. Sadly, Ellie wasn't the only person in the Nestler family who had run-ins with the law. Willie Nestler continued to struggle after his mother was released from prison for the first time. By the time he was 14 years old, Willie had been arrested numerous times for battery, weapons charges, robbery, and drug charges. He spent time in juvenile hall for the drug charges. Between 1999 and 2004, Willie had been arrested 18 times. In 2004, when Willie was 23 years old, he would commit a crime that would have serious consequences. Willie had been living in a trailer home in Sonora, along with 45-year-old David Davis. In June of 2004, the two men got into a fight over some missing tools and Willie severely beat Davis. Willie was arrested and spent a month in jail for the assault. On July 26th of 2004, less than an hour after being released from jail, a call came into police in the early morning. The anonymous caller claimed that Willie Nessler had beaten a man who was lying on the ground. When police arrived on scene, they observed the victim who was bleeding heavily from wounds to his head. Police identified the man as being David Davis, the same man Willie had assaulted just a month prior. Davis was taken to a Modesto hospital, where he died a day later. Meanwhile, an arrest warrant was issued for Willie, who was on the run after assaulting Davis. According to the Associated Press with the New York Times, Tuolumne County Sheriff's claim that Willie Nessler, right after his release from jail, went home and stomped Mr. Davis's head in after an argument over tools. Law enforcement caught up with Willie just a few days after he went on the run. In 2005, Willie Nestler was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Although Ellie wasn't behind bars anymore, her cancer had progressed to a point that made her too ill to visit Willie in prison. 
Instead, they kept in touch by phone. In December of 2008, Ellie star Nestler succumbed to her cancer and died at the age of 56. Willie requested permission to attend his mother's funeral, but his request was denied. Ellie's daughter, Becky, was 23 years old when her mother died. According to Oprah.com, Becky said that she had a very hard time after losing her mother to breast cancer and her brother to the legal system. In an interview, Becky said, It's been really hard to move on and know that I have a normal life. I'll catch myself laughing with family, and I'll sit back and be like, You know, Mom and Willie should be here with me in this moment. They should be able to laugh like this. Becky acknowledged that she had a good support system when her mom went to prison. Becky went on to get married and become a mother. She and her brother have remained close, regularly exchanging letters to stay in touch. Becky looks forward to making memories with her brother again when he is released from prison. Willie Nessler will be eligible for parole in 2031 at the age of 49. Perhaps one of the most tragic aspects to this story is that Ellie and her beloved son missed each other by only a year. While Ellie was granted early release from prison in 2006, the blessing would come too late for her to see her son again before she died. You can't leave your front door unlocked anymore. You can't walk down Main Street at night. There's misfits and junkies selling sorrow and war Between the blacks and the white Mr. Urban Renewer, that didn't quite do her It smells like a sewer downtown But thanks to Ellie Nestler, God bless her There's one less molester around Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. The song you just heard, titled Ellie Nessler, was co-produced by Dave Cavanaugh and Ron DeLacy of the band Doodoo The song was featured on their album titled Doodoo and then some. Check them out at doodooah.com. That's D-O-O-D-O-O-W-A-H.com. Also, stick around after my closing comments to hear a promo for another true crime podcast called Crime Beat. I'm interested in discussing the Ellie Nessler case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like this show, please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. You can also leave the show a rating and review in your favorite podcast listening app. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another great way to support it. This episode was made possible by BetterHelp and FabFitFun. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. And don't forget to check out my Patreon service if you'd like to get access to exclusive bonus content, murderish goodie packages, and have a portion of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Just go to patreon.com slash murderish for more details. That's patreon.com slash murderish. If you want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish, head over to my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. 
I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, you name it. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources, including but not limited to news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes, someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather information that I draw from to help tell these stories. I want to say thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found in episode notes, which are accessible from any podcast player. I'm currently having a website built, and when it's done, episode source material and all kinds of other show information can be found there. If you have any comments or questions, email me at murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. Dave Cavanaugh and Ron DeLacy of Doodoo produced the song Ellie Nessler. This episode was researched by Suzette Lucero and written by me. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. It ain't right what she did at the courthouse that day. You can't take the law in your hands. So the judge found her guilty and he put her away. That's the law of the land. Hey, Murderish podcast listeners, I'm Keith Sharon, the host of Crime Beat, a true crime deep dive narrative podcast based on fascinating cases in Southern California. Right now, we're in the middle of season two, which is called Mom vs. Murderer. It's the story of Mary Bennett, a mom whose daughter, Kathy Torres, was found stabbed to death in the trunk of her own car. This is the story of Mary's two-plus decade pursuit of justice. Season one was about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States. Check out the Crime Beat podcast produced by the Southern California News Group.